Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we'll be taking a look at the history of wave elections, and we'll also analyze the impact of former President Donald Trump's endorsements on election outcomes. Welcome to On the Ballot. With just under four months until the midterms, you might have heard the term wave election creeping up more often in the news or about a potential for a blue or red wave. In the simplest terms, a wave election is when one political party makes significant electoral gains traditionally against the party in power. Over the next two weeks, we'll be analyzing the history of wave elections to better understand the chances of one later this year. Here to be our guide is staff writer Doug Kreneisel. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Good to be back, Victoria. So to begin, back in June 2018, Ballotpedia embarked on a project to analyze every U.S. election going back to 1918 to find a baseline number for what defines a true wave election. Before we dive into that research, can you describe how some media outlets define the term wave election and then how we at Ballotpedia came to define it? That's the million dollar question because there really is no agreed upon definition of what constitutes a wave in political science. Uh, some examples that people have used in the past in 2014, Real Clear Politics defined waves using a median figure of the number of defeats and a set number of incumbent defeats, as well as certain percentages in particular states. Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report said that wave elections occur when the out-of-party wins, quote, significantly more seats than they need to win control, end quote, and that a Democratic gain of 35 House seats in 2018, for example, would have qualified as a wave. She also wrote that races her outlet rates as toss-up disproportionately tend to break toward one party during wave elections. Here at Ballotpedia, we decided to define a wave not as a set-in-stone figure, but rather based on how one election cycle relates to previous election cycles. Because a wave is supposed to represent a big, unusual shift. But if every election cycle, we saw a big shift one way and then the other, back and forth, those big shifts would become less and less unusual. So it's helpful to view waves instead in context with other cycles. With all that said, in this report, we defined a wave election as the 20% of elections where the president's party lost the most seats during the past 100 years or 50 election cycles. So that's the time frame that we use, and that's the upper quintile that we use to pick out those top 20% and then say, these are the wave elections over the past 100 years. So our definition differs from how the media typically uses it in that we focus on party shifts in relation to past electoral outcomes, whereas the media often sets some sort of threshold regarding seats gained to classify wave elections. It's more of like the seesaw effect like you were describing. Did our research of elections between 1918 and 2016 reveal any concrete numbers for us to look for in terms of seats lost or gained? Under that standard, between 1918 and 2016, we found that for a wave in the U.S. House, for example, the president's party would need to lose at least 48 seats to be a true wave, because that's the low end of the largest shifts that we saw over that 100-year span of time. That's interesting. What was the upper bound of that? Yeah, the biggest wave were 97 seats lost under Herbert Hoover in 1932. That's a big number. How have some recent elections stacked up against our standard? 
The most recent wave in the U.S. House came in 2010 when Democrats lost 63 seats under President Obama. Before that, there was a wave in 1994 when Democrats lost 54 seats under President Clinton. As you can tell from those years, these are the first midterm elections of both of their presidencies. But while... 2018, for example, has been described as a blue or a Democratic wave. It didn't quite cut it by our definition. Uh, Republicans lost a net 42 seats under President Trump when compared to their numbers following the 2016 election, which was close to that 48 seats needed to be a wave. But historically, it didn't fall within that top 20 percent range. Before the show, you were kind of telling me that if we redid our analysis today, 2018 might fall within that range. Do you want to explain that to our listeners? Exactly, because as we move forward in time and more election cycles pass, we would gain more recent election cycles for our analysis and drop earlier, further back in time election cycles. So as we move forward, if some of those waves from, you know, like 1920 and 1922 fall outside of that 100 year span, that means that we're probably going to be adding new waves within that 100 year span based on the, the context that that gives us. I'd love to dig more into those findings for our listeners, but first we should probably describe the methodology that we used. Of course. I mean, we utilize three guideposts in our analysis. The term wave election is a relative term used to compare outcomes in one year to elections in another year, like we were talking about. To define the term accurately requires looking at all of this historical data and contextual detail, which is something that we've tried to do here and has kind of been our guiding light as far as putting this report together. The term wave election, as it is used, tends to imply significant change. So there should clearly be a large effect. And we wanted to be careful not to apply this term too generously, which is why we looked at those really upper bound, upper bound changes. And then lastly, it should be separately applied to different levels of office. You know, we've been talking a lot about U.S. House I think that's where a lot of the conversation takes place when people talk about waves. But we wanted to be able to say in year X, there was a wave election in the U.S. House, but not among state legislatures. Or in year Y, there was a wave election in the U.S. House that extended to state governorships, for example. So if we look at each office level separately, we get a clearer picture on that front because we might be seeing a wave at one level of government, but not at another level. With all this info and guideposts in hands, we ended up ranking partisan changes in those 50 elections, placing them in those five quintiles according to the net seat change, giving us that standard for each level of office we cover regularly, uh, which is U.S. House, U.S. Senate, governors, and state legislatures, as one in which that net change by the president's party falls into that top 20%. I think that approach for research is also important for framing and better understanding the results. So thanks for that, Doug. I'm going to go down the list of things I found most interesting in the report after reading through it. And I wanted to start with a fun one, which we are terming tsunami election years. This is when waves appear in at least three different levels of office. How many tsunamis have we seen historically? Exactly. A tsunami would exist if we saw wave elections in you know, the U.S. House, U.S. Senate and state legislatures, for example, rather than just one or two of those office levels. These are definitely more rare recently. The most recent tsunami came in 2010, which was the first in 44 years. So like we said, that's Obama's first midterm. Democrats held majorities at all levels of government, House, Senate, governorships, state legislatures. And we saw Republican waves in the House and among governorships and state legislatures. 
While Democrats lost control of the Senate, it wasn't technically a wave at that office level in 2010. Have there been any wave elections worse than a tsunami? It's hard to think what would be worse than a tsunami, but an election where all four election groups swung in the opposite direction. Yeah, I don't know. Something worse than a tsunami, like a like a biblical flood yeah. or something along those lines, I guess is probably how it would feel if you were the, the party affected. But there have only been two in our history uh, in this span of time, and they both happened under the single term of one president. That would be Republican Herbert Hoover, uh, which had those big all the way across the board wave elections in 1930 and 1932. So that's two back-to-back wave elections against Republicans at every level of government. But helpful context, there were some crazy things going on around that time. Obviously, that was the start of the Great Depression with the stock market crash in 1929. Voters overwhelmingly turned to Democrats at that time, which ultimately led to the election of Franklin Roosevelt as president in 1932. So our research revealed that most wave elections occur disproportionately in the first and second midterm elections. Can you conjecture why that might be? It's definitely a disproportionate effect there. For context, first midterm elections account for around one third of all the elections between 1918 and 2016, but they make up over half of all wave elections in the U.S. House, at least during that time. You know, maybe buyer's remorse. Presidential elections are very nationalized affairs where one person makes a number of commitments and promises. These midterm elections provide a chance for voters to weigh in on whether they feel like the president is living up to those expectations. But another interesting phenomenon is how many waves are clustered around wars and other crises. You know, we had two waves at the onset of the Great Depression, like we mentioned. There was a wave in 2010 amid the Great Recession or a recovery from that. Waves during and immediately after World War I, World War II, and the Vietnam War. There was a wave under President Ford following Watergate. So many of these waves have come around high-profile national events that really place the president and, by extension, the president's party front and center. We'll have to wait and see if that trend will continue in this year's midterms. Lots more to unpack here regarding our research. And next week, Doug will be back to do just that. Thanks for being with us again, Doug. And happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you so much. And looking forward to it. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Balpe's Editor-in-Chief, Jeff Palais. Are you a student looking for an internship this upcoming fall? Well, look no further than Ballopedia. We're seeking self-starting and civically-minded undergraduate and graduate students to join our team. With internships with the editorial, communications, external relations, and tech teams, you have the opportunity and chance to learn through an immersive and hands-on experience. Ballopedia's fall internship programs are part-time, completely remote, and run from September to December. To learn more and apply by July 15th, search ballopedia.org internships or via the link in our show notes. I got a fever, and the prescription is more trivia. Hello, listeners. I'm assistant staff writer Paul Rader here with this week's Footnote Facts. Today's topic covers ballot measures in general. And for this first segment, we're looking at the types of ballot measures. But first, here's today's trivia question for you to answer. Which state has the most ways through which to amend its constitution? I'll have the answer later in the show. So, ballot measures come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, enough that you can't pack them all into one trivia segment. You have citizen-initiated measures, which can be done in 26 states. Interestingly enough, mostly in the western half of the country. Subtypes of this include initiated constitutional amendments and state statutes, and those can be further broken down into direct and indirect initiatives. If it's indirect, it has to go to the state legislature first, where it then goes to the ballot if it is not acted on by that legislature. 
California and Colorado allow for combined initiated amendments and statutes, and 23 states have veto referendums where voters can uphold or repeal a law passed by a legislative body. And in some states, the legislature can refer amendments or statutes to the ballot as well. Be aware that Delaware stands out as the only state that does not require voters to ratify proposed state constitutional amendments. For the other 49 states, different percentages of their legislatures are needed to refer the amendments to the ballot, such as a simple majority or 60% vote or two-thirds majority. And then you have 21 states that provide for legislatively referred state statutes like Arkansas and Kentucky. There are also more unique kinds of measures. Some are advisory questions, which don't actually result in a change to law or amendment. It's more like a poll where you can tell the government, hey, do the thing, or wag your index finger and say, don't do it. Arizona and Florida provide for commission-referred measures. Matter of fact, Florida has two of them, which meet every 20 years, though on different schedules. Some states have automatic referrals, where measures are set to appear on the ballot every so often under a certain set of circumstances. And finally, we have convention-referred measures if a state constitutional convention is called and decides to send said measures to voters, sort of like those commission referrals from before. Don't touch that dial, because we've got another exciting interview up next, and of course, more heaps of trivia. See you then. Prospective politicians across the country hope to obtain endorsements from senior or notable members of their party as a way to differentiate themselves in crowded election fields, especially during primary season. In the Republican Party, no endorsement has been under the microscope quite as intensely as former President Donald Trump's. Here to unpack how his endorsements have been faring thus far is staff writer Joel Williams. Hi, Joel. Hey, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Of course. So first off, how do we track endorsements here at Ballotpedia? So we track endorsements in several different ways. The first one's pretty easy. We just follow the social media of the person we want to track, and they usually tweet out their endorsements. Another is just reading the news every day and seeing what other journalists are covering. And third is we can find them while we research candidates and elections that we cover. Often these candidates have big sections of their website dedicated to showing people their endorsements or they'll post them on social media. I imagine they want to shout to the world when they receive a big endorsement. Are there any specific criteria for endorsements that we include in our coverage of elections? So the ones that we include are pretty clear. You know, if Donald Trump sends an email or AOC tweets that she's endorsing someone, we're going to cover those. Um, There are some that might be covered elsewhere that we don't. So if someone just gives personally to a a political campaign, we wouldn't include that. Or things like headlining a fundraiser, a campaign event, indirectly supporting them via a PAC, although we might track the PAC as an endorsement or just having some sort of leadership role in their campaign. So before we jump into Trump's track record, what other politicians' endorsements have we covered in the past or are covering at the moment? So right now on Ballotpedia, we're tracking the endorsements of six current or former politicians. And those would be former President Barack Obama, Senator Bernie Sanders, former President Donald Trump, President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and former Vice President Mike Pence. These are just folks who, over the course of time, we've gone, oh, hey, there's a lot of endorsements here in interesting races. Let's start doing some broader tracking of them. And in the future with our database, we're looking to expand our coverage of these and track endorsements by other individuals in these races like Ted Cruz or AOC. As we increase that number of endorsements we're tracking, we'll be able to kind of catch the nuances happening in different political parties as the different office holders endorse different candidates in primary fields. So that'll be really interesting. And have presidents historically endorsed candidates while they're in office or after they leave? 
So with recent presidents, this is kind of mixed. So one example of someone who does do some endorsing is Bill Clinton. And he endorsed in the 2012 primaries in several incumbent versus incumbent contest after that redistricting cycle. And he endorsed several members who endorsed his wife's campaign for president in 2008. And he also endorsed some former administration staffers. And Roll Call tracked those, and he made 10 of those endorsements in 2012. And his endorsee won five and lost five. His successor, George W. Bush, didn't really do anything in terms of endorsements after he left office, aside from campaigning a bit for his brother in 2016 when he ran for president. In the 2016 general elections, he came out and endorsed several sitting Republican U.S. senators in their re-election campaigns. And then this year, he's been a little bit more active. He's campaigned and fundraised for Liz Cheney, Brian Kemp, and Lisa Murkowski, who are all three are facing Trump endorsees. And then Barack Obama, which you can read about on our page, endorsed in primaries while he was both in and out of office. His most notable one was probably in 2010 when he endorsed U.S. Senator Arlen Specter, who was running for re-election, and he had just switched from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, and Specter ultimately lost in his primary. And then in addition to endorsing several other incumbents in 2010, Politico reported that Obama and his team pressured several potential challengers not to run against some sitting incumbents. Very interesting. When it comes to former President Trump, how long have we been monitoring his endorsements and what's his success rate look like? So we've been tracking his endorsement since 2017, which is when he endorsed Ed Gillespie's campaign for governor of Virginia. Since 2022 is still ongoing, just looking at the data 2017 through 2021, Trump's made 310 endorsements in either general or special elections, and his endorsed candidate won in 217 of those races. So that's about a 70% success rate. And how about in the 2022 primary season? Trump has made 222 endorsements so far. And in the ones that have already taken place, his endorsed candidate has had a 93% success rate. So they've won 136 elections and lost 10. And four of those losses came in U.S. House primaries, and three of them were in gubernatorial primaries. It's interesting that his endorsements have skyrocketed and have also become more successful in these primaries as compared to while he was president. What are people in the media saying about these endorsements? They're saying a lot of things. The success in Trump's endorsements, people are saying, are a combination of factors. So polling pretty consistently indicates that Trump remains one of, if not the most popular political figure among Republicans. And most of those polls also say he remains their preferred 2024 presidential candidate. Also, you have to factor in that primaries, particularly closed primaries where only Republicans can vote, tend to attract people from the ends of the political spectrum rather than the middle in terms of voter turnout. So those are kind of two reasons why his endorsement matters the most. And the way the media is talking about it, this quote from NBC News's Mark Caputo kind of sums it up. So in May, he wrote, quote, J.D. Vance looked like just another Ohio also ran in the crowded GOP Senate primary. Then Donald Trump decided to get involved. And obviously, J.D. Vance won that primary. And Trump's endorsees and other open Senate primaries have had similar success. So In Pennsylvania, we saw Dr. Oz win after he got endorsed by Trump and he kind of shot up the polls. And then in Georgia, they just had kind of a wide open primary field. And um, Herschel Walker won that primary relatively easily with Trump's backing. So that's kind of why we've been keeping such a close eye on those, because he kind of helps pick out individuals in a field who might suddenly, you know, start getting more media attention or money or other endorsements from you know, Trump administration officials. There have been candidates that have lost, most notably kind of challengers to incumbents. So he had three different candidates in Georgia, for example, running for governor, secretary of state and attorney general against incumbents that all lost, even though they weren't endorsed by him. 
There was also an interesting storyline in Alabama earlier in the year with the Senate race between Mo Brooks and Katie Britt. Mo Brooks received Donald Trump's endorsement and then it was taken back by Donald Trump and he ended up endorsing Katie Britt. You want to kind of describe the dynamic there? Yeah, that was such a interesting situation. So Donald Trump endorsed Mo Brooks, I want to say last year when he had first announced he was going to run for the open U.S. Senate seat in Alabama. And then Mo Brooks did a media tour and said a couple things that Donald Trump disagreed with about the 2020 presidential election. And Trump said, hey, I'm not endorsing you anymore. You know, after the primary and when it was going into the runoff, Brooks eventually, you know, was posting on social media and kind of, you know, asking Trump to re-endorse him. Trump said no and then endorsed his opponent who ultimately beat Mo Brooks. So just a weird situation overall. Are high profile political endorsements something new, considering that even for Trump himself, his recent endorsement track record in this primary cycle alone wasn't all that far off from the total number of endorsements he made during his presidency? Yeah, so endorsements certainly aren't a new political phenomenon, but they are something we've started tracking more closely in the past half decade or so. Just on Ballotpedia side of things, we started tracking these in depth during the 2016 campaign cycle when Bernie Sanders ran for president and then sort of began endorsing candidates at all levels in Democratic primaries. You know, he was endorsing state legislators. He might have even endorsed a local candidate or two in a Democratic primary. And so that kind of made us perk up our ears and go, oh, hey, we should probably start covering this for our readers because they might find it interesting. And those involved in future cycles beyond just, you know, his personal endorsement into groups like Justice Democrats and Sunrise, who continue even to today to endorse in these Democratic primaries where they have more progressive challengers up against more moderate incumbents. And what about President Joe Biden? Has he come out and endorsed a lot of candidates this primary season? He has not. He's taken sort of the complete opposite approach to the one that Donald Trump has. So since he campaigned for president in 2020, we've only tracked him endorsing 56 times. And pretty much all of those came in 2020. He's only endorsed in three primary campaigns so far. So he endorsed Chantel Brown in Ohio and Danny Davis in Illinois, who each won their primaries. And then he endorsed Kurt Schrader in Oregon, who lost his. Got it. So we'll be keeping our eyes peeled to see if he makes any additional endorsements this cycle. And you can find them on Ballotpedia if he does. Thanks for coming on the show, Joel. Of course. Glad to be here. You know what my favorite yogurt is? Actrivia! But um, it's Paul Rader, and I'm back with footnote facts. Now let's dive further into how measures get on the ballot. The last segment talked a bit about this for legislatively referred measures, but what about citizen-initiated ones? Well. Of the 26 states that allow for citizen initiatives, 16 of them have what are known as distribution requirements. A distribution requirement means a certain number of signatures must come from each of a given political subdivision instead of just a simple statewide total. And so for four of those states, such as Florida, it's based on congressional districts. Michigan used to be in this category, but that state's Supreme Court overturned those requirements back in January 2022. Seven states based distribution on counties, such as Ohio, Four states base it on state legislative districts such as Idaho. And then for Utah, distribution is based on counties for veto referendums, but on state legislative districts for state statutes. But wait, there's more. Some states have other stipulations for citizen initiatives. In 16 states, we have what is called a single subject rule, which means that initiatives are required to focus on only a single subject, topic or issue. Hence the name. The other 10 states with initiatives do not require this. There's also a similar rule called the separate vote requirement, which prohibits constitutional amendments from changing more than one article or section in that state's constitution. And that's found in at least six states. All in all, in any case, citizen initiatives, when they get enough signatures, 
turn them into an appropriate elections office, which verifies the signatures. And barring any lawsuits could be challenges to things like a measure's constitutionality or invalid signatures or the wording of a petition's language. When an elections office validates enough signatures, that measure goes to the ballot for a vote. There might be some more nuances to the process depending on the state, but generally that's how citizen initiatives become ballot measures. That's it for trivia segment two. Later will be the epic conclusion to today's footnote facts, which discusses how ballot measures pass by state. And I will answer the trivia question from earlier in the show. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Staying on top of politics can feel like a full-time job. Heck, it's my full-time job. Here at Ballotpedia, our team updates hundreds of pages on our site each and every day. Nobody in their right mind would want to comb through them all. And thanks to Ballotpedia's newsletters, you'll never have to. We have over a dozen different newsletters, like the monthly Robe and Gavel newsletter, which covers the Supreme Court of the United States and other judicial happenings around the country. Here's some headlines from this month's Robe and Gavel newsletter, which came out on July 11th. Associate Justice Stephen Breyer officially retired from the court as an active justice and assumed senior status. His successor, Associate Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, was commissioned to the court on April 8, 2022, and was sworn in on June 30th. Justice Jackson was elevated from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, and she became the first Black woman and the first former federal public defender to serve on the Supreme Court. On June 28, the Supreme Court blocked a U.S. District Court's preliminary injunction that required new redistricting maps in Louisiana. The case Ardawan v. Robinson concerns whether the Louisiana State Legislature must draw a new congressional voting map to create two majority-minority districts based on race as the sole non-negotiable variable. The District Court ruled the existing maps violated the Voting Rights Act. Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan dissented in the unsigned order. Go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for Robe and Gavel or to check out our other newsletters. Holy fun facts, Batman! It's the last segment of Footnote Facts with me, Paul Rader. It's one thing to get constitutional amendments up for a vote, but how do they actually pass? Well, in most states, constitutional amendments require a simple majority of voters to pass them. But the threshold gets a bit steeper in some cases, as some states require a supermajority of voters to approve. So Colorado needs 55% approval, Florida and Illinois need 60%, and New Hampshire needs two-thirds. But in a bunch of states, the threshold is not so straightforward. For example, in Minnesota, constitutional amendments need not just a majority of support on the question, but a majority of all voters participating in the election. So if you vote in the election, but you leave that amendment question blank, you're basically saying no. Similarly, Tennessee requires a majority vote of those voting on the amendment, as well as a majority of those who vote in the gubernatorial election specifically. And to make things a bit more complicated, Alabama, Louisiana, and Maryland have their own requirements for constitutional amendments that have local applicability instead of being statewide things. Then in Utah and Washington, there are supermajority requirements if the amendment is about a very specific topic. Two-thirds of voters are needed in Utah if the amendment is about taking wildlife, and 60% of and 60% of voters are needed in Washington if it is about gambling. And now don't worry, I didn't forget about the trivia question from earlier in the show. Before I answer it, though, here's the question one more time. And a quick hint: I mentioned the answer several times throughout the show, and it's my home state. Which state has the most ways through which to amend its constitution? And if your answer is Florida, you win. You got it right, and I'm so proud of you. You win 100 points 
on the show where nothing is made up, but the points don't matter. And that's all for this episode's footnote facts. Thanks for listening. Let's send this back to the best host ever to close out the show. The floor is yours, Victoria. Thanks, Paul. That's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Doug, Joel, and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week to discuss more analysis on wave elections, as well as what to watch for in state legislative elections this fall. If you have any questions, comments, or love for BP, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening.